This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance TNA. I hope you're all safe and well in your bubbles in the new Level 3 lockdown. Later on, we're on our bike, talking with a cycling sociologist. But first, cast your mind back to the devastating Australian bushfires that destroyed 12 million hectares late last year. It seems a very long time ago now, but as the land slowly begins to recover, it turns out that there's still a legacy of those fires lingering in the atmosphere. I rang Niwa atmospheric scientist Richard Querrell to find out more and began by asking him where he was. I'm in central Otago. I'm in a sleep out in my yard hiding from my young kids and I'm about 10 kilometers away from the Lauder Atmospheric Research Station where I work. Now in terms of science and particularly atmospheric science, Lauder is a pretty famous place isn't it? Oh, yeah. World famous. Arguably the best instrumented site in the Southern Hemisphere for atmospheric composition measurements. It's been there since the 60s, and measurements started with ionospheric upper atmosphere and then slowly got into stratosphere and down to troposphere. Basically, now it includes surface work, like um, carbon flux balance, these kinds of things. So the, the whole atmosphere is being measured by a variety of our instruments of our own and of some overseas collaborators who we host their, their hardware. So what kind of things are you measuring? Carbon dioxide, methane, ozone are the ones that come to mind first for me? Yep, those greenhouse gases, definitely. Uh, but also measure solar radiation, properties of clouds, of aerosols. We've got instruments that look at the sun and look at the, uh, the absorption of the, the gases in the atmosphere. And then from that, you can deduce concentrations. But we also have active instruments that shoot lasers into the air. Then you can measure ozone concentration. You can look at volcanic ash or smoke, like smoke from these bushfires, for example. Now, let's talk about that because it interests me that you've been following the smoke because that was a few months ago. Yeah, well, the the bulk of the fires was, was last year. And we saw one particular blob come over about 50 days after it left uh, Australia, it went across the Pacific and then came back. And by the time it was back over us, it was uh, between 25 and 30 kilometers high, whereas initially the fire would have only put it to maybe 15 kilometers. And so that other 10 kilometers of lift happened with the sun, like the sun was heating all of the carbon aerosol and the soot that was in this cloud. And that's a very unique feature because that doesn't seem to happen for other kind of big plumes that you see from big volcanoes. 
that soot in the in the dust that was coming from those fires, it was dark. Yes, uh, very strongly absorbing of of sunlight, and so all of that solar thermal heating heated up the the air parcel itself, and then that slowly rose. It's just kind of good coincidence, I guess, that this the material in this smoke cloud was light, like it was a very small particle, so it was easy enough for it to be buoyant. If you imagine that the fire hadn't been so energetic and the smoke didn't go so high, it would still be kind of this wetter smoke. Like if you look at a big smoke cloud, the majority of that's all water. And so if you think of those particles having kind of absorbed some of this water, they're heavier and they, they just they, they fall sooner. Gravity pulls them down sooner. Whereas since the fires had been so energetic, it pushed this smoke up, this kind of combustion material, high up and it pierced up into the, into the stratosphere, so just above the, the troposphere, up through the tropopause into the lower stratosphere, and kind of dehydrated. So then all of a sudden you had all this soot material that was very dry and now light. And so since it was light, it was kind of floating. It was a bit more suspended. And then once the sun heated up this kind of really absorbing material, that slowly start to increase its buoyancy and start to lift. And so it's since ascended another twice the amount of height. So it's up at, you know, some of that material is up at 32, 35 kilometers now. Is that normal? Well, normal as in this is a natural process. Yeah, normal as in something we don't see very often, though. Certainly have not seen this before. Um, There have been big fires before, fires that ejected material high into the air. But no, something like this was not seen as as far as I know. I was trying to look back through other examples in the literature and I haven't seen any any like this. When smoke is, is put that high, some of it must be kind of heated and moved up, but it, I guess it all depends on what type of material is up there. If it's just gases that aren't absorbing any of this thermal energy and so they're not, not really getting hotter. Um, the unique part of this is this carbon aerosol, this kind of amorphous complex material that's up there that's absorbing. Like what we can just imagine is is soot, you know, like the stuff that's coming out of your chimney. So this sooty blob, how big did it get? Well, hard to say. Like we saw certain filaments of it and different pieces of it because you you got to think that the fires were going for quite a while and big patches of smoke and these clouds, they were going for months. And so all through this kind of the southern hemisphere this, in the mid-latitudes, there's just pieces of it and pockets of it everywhere. The pieces that came over us we saw them and they were maybe five kilometers thick, but that's just kind of like the bulk of the, the center area. There there was a kind of a gradient, so it spread out. But what we had seen was about maybe five kilometers thick. And stretching for quite a few kilometers in either direction. Oh, hundreds, hundreds of kilometers. And by now it's since stretched out to be kind of uh, more uniform. Like you can still see higher concentrations, Apache-ness to it, but it's indistinct now. Now it's kind of just spread everywhere. So it started in Australia, and then it headed across towards South America, and then it rose, and then it came back in our direction. Where did it go to after that? Well, that particular blob kept going westward, and then under South Africa, um, South America, and ended up circling around a couple times, but has since become kind of more diffuse. But that's just one of these patches. There was other patches that went in other directions. Maybe they didn't go so high, and so they've since mixed out and... um, 
you know, basically kind of fallen out of the air, or other ones are kind of at a variety of, of altitudes. So now it's sort of a smear up there now if, if you look in some of the, the measurements from satellites uh, nowadays. So how have you been measuring this? We saw it just by chance. It, it came straight overhead. And so we ran our, our lasers and measured it. We launched some balloons that went up right through it. So we, we launched balloons a couple of days ahead of it and then one right through it and then a couple of days after to try to see the differences, to probe its boundaries. Whereas some of our colleagues who have instruments on satellites, they have just been looking at the carbon monoxide, for example, as one of the ingredients in this cloud. And so they were they were looking at the carbon monoxide concentrations and seeing where that was going. And that's how they were able to trace this one particular blob as it went across the Pacific and then circled and came back. And so they alerted us several days ahead of time saying, this looks like it's right on track to go over your station. And they knew we had this wide array of instruments that we could really measure this and so they let us know, and it was it was great. So that extra carbon monoxide in the stratosphere, does that mean anything? Does that have any significance? Carbon monoxide is something that's normally in the atmosphere, but uh, far more dilute, at least at that height. And so it reacts with OH, with hydroxyl radical, and gets converted back to carbon dioxide. But how long that happens up at, at that height is a bit longer. Like we talk about its reaction rates, but that's more in the in the troposphere, lower down. Up there depending on how much of this OH is available, all of a sudden the carbon monoxide might end up staying there a longer time because there's got, there's nothing for it to react with until that OH gets replenished by the natural processes. Has it had an impact on other things up in the, in the stratosphere? And I'm thinking things like ozone. When this one particular cloud came over our station and we measured its composition, we could see levels of ozone that were low, much lower than normal. And we could see levels of carbon monoxide that were much higher than normal. We could also see high water vapor, relatively high water vapor, because in the stratosphere there's very low amounts of water vapor already. Uh, we could also see high N2O. And so some of these gases you wouldn't expect to see at those high levels. And so it pointed to the fact that it had started as this cloud at 15 kilometers where some of these concentrations made more sense. And then that lifted itself as a, as a kind of continuous body. So it brought some of this low altitude air up to a higher altitude position. So now when it was looked at relative to the high altitude, all these things were really anomalous, but not really if you think about it as low altitude air having been transported upward. So it's a combination of there's the transport issue, like you've brought this low altitude air upward, but there's also some chemical processes that are happening inside that smoke cloud. So both of those are resulting in, in what we see there. So the lower ozone then, it's not a concern, it's nothing on the scale of the um, annual Antarctic ozone hole, for instance. No, no, it's not. At that specific height, it's a very big change, 50% less. But the amount of ozone at that height, like the overall concentration relative to the total column, is very small. And so uh, you're talking a couple percent difference. Over time, a couple percent difference, that starts to affect trends and has more climate impacts. But it was contained within this one one cloud. So it's it's unique because it, that degree of kind of depletion or of missing ozone at that height has never been seen before in, in ozone zones, sort of, sort of between this 25 to 30 kilometer altitude. That's the unique part. As soon as the cloud moved off and then you had the regular air around it, those ozone levels popped back up to normal. So it was inside that cloud, as it was staying this uniform body, there was this interesting chemistry happening inside that. Are there any long-term climate implications for events like this? In some degree, yes. 
you can imagine that the aerosols up there, like the small particulate, it might stay for months more, years more. In the past, when there's been massive volcanic eruptions, some of that material can stay up there for years. Uh, it'll have some effect on the radiation that's coming in because it'll, it'll change temperatures of the certain parts of the atmosphere. Yes, I can see how it would have some impacts. These fires are also a bit of a foreshadowing of what may be happening in a, a warming world where there's more fires, more intense fires. We might see more instances of these massively energetic fires that push a lot of material up into the stratosphere. And then once it's up in the stratosphere, it can last a long time. Um, all of the weather as we know it in this kind of mixing, it happens in the troposphere. So that's the lower part of the atmosphere. As soon as you put the material above that, it can last a long time. What's interesting is that these were specifically emitted at the end of December. And so we saw it over Lauder when it was just a few days old, and it was much lower down. And so it had mixed through to the surface, and we could even smell smoke. Uh, and some of our instruments saw very high carbon monoxide at the surface level. And so this is amazing after it's gone over sort of the Tasman. Then, by good chances, the smoke ended up coming back over us another 50 days later. And so that's kind of a really unique natural experiment that, you know, you have to try to take full advantage of. And that's why we, we got everything measuring that we, we could. That's just one patch, though. And so you have several other patches that have gone through their own evolution with altitude and over time. And so I'm not sure how representative this one specific patch is for the rest of this now kind of blur that's all over the southern hemisphere, but you can only measure what you see. So that's where the ground-based measurements that we have are useful as these pinpoints, but it's also useful to have satellites that can give you a more global perspective. So you're collaborating with people who are doing those satellite measurements? As well as uh, with modelers who try to then piece together the measurements from satellite and ground-based to try to understand the processes involved. And has the smoke stayed in the southern hemisphere? It hasn't managed to drift across the hemispheres? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, not from what I have, have seen. I, I just saw a plot uh, that was data from last week, and it showed this faded blur over the whole southern hemisphere from maybe 30 degrees southward. But it's kind of hard to say because right now we're in sort of unique times in that the northern hemisphere doesn't look like the normal northern hemisphere atmosphere since they don't have all of the industrial activity that they normally do. So you know how you hear all these news stories about how all these places are unpolluted now and they can see the Himalayas and things like that. That's unique because normally they have much more uh, aerosol and kind of combustion materials in the atmosphere. And so that's what would be measured by some of these satellites. And so this image that I saw, it kind of shows a northern hemisphere that's a bit cleaner. And so all of this hazy smoke in the southern hemisphere really stands out. But I don't know on a regular year how distinct that would be. So, no, it's hard to say. Thanks, Richard. Richard Querrell is an atmospheric scientist at NIWA's Lauder Atmospheric Research Station. The polluting aerosols that he mentioned are at low levels in the Northern Hemisphere right at the moment because, of course, of the COVID-19 shutdowns. These aerosols don't go high into the atmosphere. If you head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, you'll see an earlier image taken from space and showing data for the upper atmosphere for all of January this year. It shows a huge mass of bushfire dust across the southern hemisphere and, really interestingly, in the northern hemisphere, 
the lingering effects of two volcanic eruptions dating from the middle of last year. Kei te whakaronga mai, koe ki tō tātou au horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now, during the four and a bit weeks of Level 4 lockdown, our streets were largely empty of cars, and pedestrians and cyclists had freedom to roam. Everyone was commenting how pleasant it was. Now, under Level 3... People are leaping into their cars and traffic is quickly building up again. It's a good time to catch up with cycling sociologist Mike Lloyd from Victoria University of Wellington. He's very interested in how pedestrians, cyclists and drivers coexist on city roads. I recorded this interview pre-lockdown and gosh, I've been struck with how much traffic there is on a normal weekday. Now, Mike, we've met up in central Wellington, we're on the corner of Oriental Bay, um, but where it comes into town, and there's a big wide pedestrian footpath, um, and there's now a separated bicycle path yeah. with an area on it that is basically for pedestrians to come and go from their cars. There's actually a bicycle counter on that thing. So what does it say today? 375. So 375 cyclists have passed, and here goes 376. So commuting in Wellington, there's lots of cars going past, obviously, but it's not the only way that people commute. Oh, just in the last year, really, in Wellington, it's diversified with particularly the introduction of the the trial e-scooters. So I've been down here for about 15 minutes, and I would have seen, I don't know, 20 or so e-scooters go past. Um, Some of them are the rental ones, the Jump or the Flamingos. Some of them are privately owned. There's an increasing number of privately owned scooters and I think one reason they're taking off is because they go quicker. I saw one guy on a really jazzed up one I think was doing at least 25, maybe close to 30 k's around the waterfront which is kind of interesting to watch. (laughs) There's also electric skateboards too, I've seen more of those and Um, they they rattle along at quite the clip as well. Yeah, And there's um, the one wheeled electric things, I'm not even sure what they're called but we might see one of those if we hang around long enough. So there's quite a complex dynamic going on here around this at this time of day in Wellington as people are commuting because you've got yeah. you've got cars, you've got buses, you've got cyclists, you've got walkers, you've got scooters, you've got a whole lot of other mm-hmm. things going on. And I should point out that you're actually on a bicycle and I'm currently being someone standing in a bike lane, so I'll just move. But there have been two people yeah. strolling obliviously right down the middle of what should be the bicycle area. Before I started talking with you, I actually rode along there and there was a guy coming, walking along straight towards me. And I was tempted to say, uh, excuse me, you're walking in the cycle lane. But it wasn't a problem because it's, it's wide enough. But if it got any busier, yeah, you would start to think, oh. And this is you know, classically been a problem for cyclists finding a space so we're so thrilled to get a cycle lane and then you find <laughs> there's pedestrians but you can tolerate that but then there's hundreds of e-scooters <laughs> who are again entitled to be there because they haven't worked out where they belong Yeah well this area here is on this first look is a fairly safe area because it's wide but of course there are a whole lot of other areas around Wellington which are nowhere near as amenable to, to having so much different kind of traffic. There's just there is a constraint as to you know what you can build into it. One example was, as is probably well known throughout the country, there was a huge controversy about the Island Bay Cycleway. But when you went down there, it was pretty wide road, and I th- I thought it worked. 
Um, so tell me about some of the research you've been doing in this area. I know that you've mentioned the, the Island Bay Cycleway. Do you want to describe actually what the initial uh, look of that cycleway was, how it worked, mm. and then some of the work you were doing there? Yeah, of course, I live in Wellington, so you, you could hardly escape it. So there was an existing cycleway in Island Bay. Uh, it was a pretty traditional one, so i.e. footpath, car parking, and then a white line on the outside of the cars for the bikes to go along. And it is a pretty wide road, and I guess it worked, but it's the classic problem. Is it doesn't really provide a lot of protection to the cyclist, so you can get doored or you can get hit by, from a car from the other side. So, so a door is when somebody just opens the yeah, door quickly in happens, front of you. It's a, it's a horrifying thing, and it happens too, too frequently. It's not really much of a solution. It doesn't encourage people to get out on their bike, and particularly for, for young children. I mean, a, a parent doesn't want their kid to be you know, run over by a car, obviously. So not much of an encouragement. So the design was, um, I think it's called a Copenhagen-style cycle lane. So... It went to the footpath um, and the car parks were moved out and the cycle lane went between the car parks and the footpath. It was a, a bit wider and there was a dotted line for, for where the car door could open and there were green cycle signs and so on. And also in the middle of Island Bay where there's about a half a kilometre shopping area, they, they decided they couldn't have that so they went to what's called a sharrow. So they put in speed bumps at either end. And the sharrow is a a cycle sign with a double arrow at at the head of it. And the notion is that that's a space where the cyclists can claim the centre of the road. They can legitimately ride in the centre of the road. And it's a 30k zone. And and a car should, you know, be quite happy to let them in front. But I think some of your early work, when they first introduced those, was your idea that it wasn't actually made clear how the cyclist was allowed to use that shared yeah. area. Well, the thing was, when they when they built that, the Sharrow was still actually not officially mandated in New Zealand road code. It was still under trial, and they were relatively new. I mean, commonsensically, if you see a bike riding in the middle of the road, you don't run them over. Um, but unfortunately, I think a lot of people didn't really know that's what the sign meant. And so, I mean, when I rode down there the first few times... I didn't go out in the middle of the road because I'm just not used to it. As a cyclist, you know, you're well aware that you're vulnerable. So my habit was to ride along the normal left line um, beside the cars. So it takes a little bit of bravery to, to get out in the middle. And, you know, you get a few cars beefing at you. And it's only it's not a, a large distance, so if they're patient, you get through. And, you know, a bike can travel at 20 k's an hour quite easily. So you're not going much slower than the the car's supposed to go but that was quite an interesting space um, but I also did drive my car through through the, the length of Island Bay and I must admit it, it, it certainly did feel a little bit narrowed and it just taking a, a little bit of getting used to but once you get used to it I think it, it worked fine and and I think the the Ferrari about it was, was probably from a relatively small number of, of local residents I think the City Council has now ch- said they will change the design of that cycleway. Yes, my understanding, and I've seen some of the plans, is they're going to go back to having the cycle lane on the footpath, so the footpath will be extended. 
and that's where the bikes will be and the cars will then go back to being parked alongside the footpath. So there's the issue of cars and cyclists, then there's another issue of cyclists and pedestrians and how they yeah. navigate each other. There's a number of bus stops along the length of Island Bay and they decided to have a, a bus stop bypass so the cycle lane would then weave onto the footpath and it was a shared space. Uh, this is quite a well-known design, came out of Europe, uh, it's been around for decades. So the notion is that rather than having excessive signage, you might have a a couple of signs indicating it's a shared space and you let people work it out and they pretty much do I mean nobody really wants to run into somebody else and do them damage so uh, you slow down you look at each other but that was also interesting that you don't always have to look at each other to to indicate safety pedestrians are quite uh, infamous for, for actually being oblivious and there's quite a lot of research uh, worldwide that shows that pedestrians will cross roads quite frequently and not show they're looking at a driver and force the driver to give way to them and it it can actually work but it's quite clearly a very risky or potentially risky strategy but yeah you do find that as well. You've done some research where you separated the way people aren't looking and that's Mm. in quotation marks into two kinds of not looking. It's the distinction between doing oblivious and being oblivious. So being oblivious is where you really are oblivious. You're totally uh, giving no consideration. You just simply walk into the road and cross. Now, that's clearly quite risky, but generally speaking, if a car driver sees that and they're going slow enough, they will stop. Whereas doing oblivious is the notion that you're more consciously not looking and you know, knowing that you're doing that, and you, it's a sort of conscious strategy. You know, you can walk around Wellington and see quite a lot of that in pedestrian activity. So that's the idea that the, you, you might glance, basically apprise yourself <coughs> of the situation well, and then feel that you don't need to make eye contact yeah, with anyone, you um, can now keep going. You're aware, but you don't actually want to glance at, at a pedestrian or a cyclist or a driver because they, they therefore know that you've seen them, that you actually try to avoid <laughs> giving that glance off. But you peripherally you are aware yeah that's that's the notion and it's quite it's obviously quite hard to distinguish between um, somebody that's seen via peripheral vision even the smallest movement of the head might indicate that but we're quite attuned to seeing that we're very very good at reading bodily gestures and movements even of the most minimal kind you know? we're, we're, we're always on the lookout for that and it makes perfect sense for, even in this quite safe environment here you know, we never know what another person's going to do. Pedestrians are quite notorious. Quite clearly they're able to change direction, probably the quickest of any kind of mode of transport. A bike is quicker than a car, but a pedestrian is the most able to change direction. So we're sort of we're aware of that, and we're always looking out for it. Um, and then you have the different uh, speeds we're travelling at, so a cyclist is going faster than a pedestrian car faster than cyclists and then of course you've got e-scooters and so it's getting remarkably complex yeah so you're doing some work on e-scooters at the moment what are you yeah doing? i've had a, a summer student and we've basically uh utilized uh, action cameras the gopro camera and have discreetly followed on an e-scooter with a camera trying to see if we can follow behind uh, e-scooterists as we call them to see where they actually go, how they interact how they give way because the thing is it's still under trial in Wellington so there's no formal regulations about where they should go so consequently you find e-scooters on the pavement they're entitled to be there 
uh, on the road and cycle lanes. And, you know, they, they weave in and out of all those different spaces. In Auckland, they've, they've um, introduced a number of speed regulations and stipulations as to where they should be, but currently in Wellington, we haven't resolved that. The council's um, just finished a survey. I think they had 6,000 responses. You'd have to think it's going to be sort of pretty much divided into pro and con. <laughs> you know, you either love them or you hate them, you know. Uh, so somehow or other they've got to work out um, how they're going to regulate the use of e-scooters. The other complication there is technologically you can regulate the rental ones. You can put, you can use technology to, to make a speed limit and even where they go. But uh, you can't do the same with privately owned e-scooters. You can't force people technologically to, you know, to not go over 20 kilometres an hour. So from this body of video data that you've collected, have you come to any um, conclusions yet? There's some emerging research from overseas, and there's a nice piece of work um, was done in Paris, and the researchers used the term hacking the city. So the notion that um, e-scooters are used to to divert um, blockages to people will ride them and get to a stop sign and they'll stop and they'll walk across the road. So it's a very um, flexible mode of transport. That means you're quickly moving between being someone on an e-scooter and being a pedestrian. Yeah, exactly. And that way you can get around the city quicker than a car can. And obviously Paris is particularly, you know, prone to traffic jams. The thing that we found most interesting, though, was sort of, they are fun to ride. You know, we, I tried riding them, and that's the first thing you discover. They're quite easy. You can, you can get the hang of, of riding it within a few seconds, and then you discover that it's pleasurable. You can weave in and you can accelerate, and you, you do go faster than pedestrians. And Wellington has some good spaces, like the waterfront, where you can, it's wide and you can go at quite a decent speed. The other interesting thing is um, you can get overconfident. So you're learning to weave and accelerate. Then you find yourself on a, on a footpath where there are lots and lots of pedestrians. And, oh, I've got to, I've got to learn how to brake properly and not go too fast and go around them. And, and, and so, you know, you get this interesting dynamic between the pleasure and the fun and, and being careful not to collide with others. And also, the other thing is the wheel size is quite small, and so they are prone to, to problems. You, I mean, I think the case in Auckland where a rider was killed, uh, my recollection is it was a stone in the wheel that locked it, and he went over the handlebars and hit his head. Uh, so you do have to be careful about where, where you go on them. A curbside is, is an obstacle. You don't usually ride over a curbside on them because you might fall off. Um, and yet we've seen e-scooters who are able to, to hop the curb, so we've got quite skillful at riding them, and, and partly because of this logic of not slowing down, keeping your momentum going. So that's a, a really interesting dynamic. So I'll be going through the video data in quite close detail, trying to, to find examples of uh, that potentially risky riding based upon a notion of being skillful and enjoying riding the the scooter. So that's how you analyse the video data, it's basically going through and pulling out specific Um, examples of behaviours. watching them the first time, watching them again, carefully going through it's surprising what you can see when you go through a video several times and play it down slow go through frame by frame and you can find some quite fascinating things, yeah. Thanks Mike. Mike Lloyd is a cycling sociologist at Victoria University of Wellington. And that's all we've time for.
Paper, you can listen again whenever you like on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. We're on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Stay safe and keep washing your hands. Many thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marie.